is a first. I made sure to turn it on, but not put it over my ear. Uh, I've been on vacation for a week, right? <laughs> Summertime, anybody? Um, welcome again to Encounter, and uh, believe it or not, I do work here as a preaching pastor. I do this every once in a while. We're in a series right now called Do Over. Uh, in case you've been kind of coming in and out of uh, the series or church here, kind of vacation time like I have over the summer, uh, what I want to do, I guess, is just to, to show you, in case this is your first time, returning time, just like the concept of the series, the idea behind the series, is that at one point or another, all of us, whether right now or some point in our life, we are going to need a do-over. In fact, we're probably going to need two, three, four, five do-overs in life. And so the concept of this series is that we've all made mistakes, we've all gone down the wrong road, we've all have been down on our luck, we've all had things in life that we needed to turn away from. And for all of us, there's the God, and we're saying, in light of this series, there's the God of the do-over, which is great news for every single one of us. We've taken a look in this series a couple weeks ago and the story of Judah in the book of Genesis. And, and there's somebody there who made a massive mistake in his past. In fact, he sold his little brother into slavery to some traders who, who then sold him into slavery into Egypt. And then we saw what God did with that story. And, and for the purposes this morning, I just want to remind you, not the whole thing again, but just remind you that, that God didn't sweep that mistake under the rug. God didn't ignore that mistake. God didn't click undo. God didn't make it so that it never happened or never mattered. What God did is something infinitely more awesome than that, is that he redeemed it. He turned something terrible for good. And by doing so, giving Judah a second chance, a do-over to redeem himself. You can listen to that one online. Last week, we looked at, at, at some of those things that keep us from accepting the invitation from God of a do-over. All of us want a do-over, but we have a hard time accepting the invitation from him. And last week, we heard, maybe it's simply because of the shame that exists in our life from past decisions, from past relationships. We heard the story of a woman who goes out to fetch water at noon. This is the hottest part of the day in the hottest parts of the world. And the reason why she goes at noon, we heard last week, is that she didn't want to talk to anybody. She didn't want to meet anybody new. She didn't want to catch up with old friends because the shame that carried her drove her there at noon where Jesus met her and changed her life by giving her a fresh start, a do-over, you could say. Today, we're going to talk about another thing that keeps us from accepting the invitation of God of a do-over in our lives. And that thing is fear. We're going to get into fear today and what's going to be, I think, helpful for you and for your day and maybe week or two ahead is, is for you to keep in your mind what, what you fear. Now, I'm, I'm hoping to go a little, like, slightly deeper than, like, I'm afraid of spiders. We're all afraid of spiders. They're creepy and they have eight legs and they, like, don't die. But we're, we want to go just, like, a layer or two deeper than that, right, of saying, like, what's down there that maybe you haven't told anybody about? Maybe you've never even prayed about? Like, what's the fear inside of you that you don't want to get out? You don't want to offer it up to God because, because you're afraid of what he might say about it or what he might ask you about it, what other people might say about it or what other people might ask you about it. What's the fear in your life. We're not going to have you write it down. We're not going to have you come forward, but it would just be helpful for you, I think, if you just held that thing in your mind about what keeps you up at night, about what you're afraid of. Um, I heard a, a little while ago, a mentor that told me, uh, he said, Dirk, like, lots of people are going to tell you throughout your life that 
that people fear change. Because I'm, I'm telling you, people don't fear change. That's a lie. That's a mistake. He said, people don't fear change. They fear loss of that change. He goes, people aren't afraid to make a geographical change. They're not afraid to make uh, a career change, or they're not afraid to see their family change and to move inevitably through different stages of parenting or adulthood. They don't fear the change. No, no, we don't fear change. We fear the loss that comes from that change. We fear the loss that a geographic change brings when we, when we lose out on, on the city and the restaurants and the, the roots that we put down in a town for so long and for so many years. We, we fear the change, the loss of the change in careers because there's something that held us in that previous job for so long. There's some relationships there, or maybe it's just the sense of going to work and knowing what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, and now that's gone. And we fear not the change of career, but we fear the loss of what we had before. We don't fear our kids growing up and leaving us at some point or another. We fear the loss of the stages that they were in, of the little footsteps running through the kitchen. And looking back at that, we fear loss, not change. So what, like, what is it? What's that thing that you fear? Uh, my wife and I, Kristen, we celebrated 12 years of marriage a little while ago. And I said, thank you. I mentioned that before. I got nothing, but <laughs> like appropriate response. And, and you know, we've been through some stuff as I think everybody here who's been together with somebody for that long, you know, but but I've been reflecting on this as this quote from The Meaning of Marriage. And, uh, and then the quote says that, that to be loved but not known is shallow, is superficial, it's, it's worthless, it's almost nothing. But conversely, to be known, right? To have somebody like look into your life, look into your heart, look into your soul and see everything that's down in there and to, for that person to know you and to not love you the author says that's, that's the epitome of fear, to be known truly and not to be loved, to be known and to be rejected. That's terrifying. That's fear. Now, just to finish the quote, to bring those things together, to be known deeply and truly and to be loved, not for who you pretend to be, for who, for who you actually are, that's a lot like being loved by God. Amen? Amen. Thank you. That is a lot like being loved by God. But it's that fear, that middle fear to be known. Maybe that's your fear that you keep in mind. What if they find out? What if they know? What if they see who I truly am? What if the word gets out? What if I'm known and I'm not loved? Like again, what's the fear? Keeping that thing in mind. I want to tell you something this morning that might be kind of scary about fear is that I don't think God is asking us to run away from what scares us. No, no, no. I think, I think in just a minute we're going to read a story about God who asks us to run right into the very thing that makes us afraid and engage it. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. We're going to the book of Exodus, and we're going to start off in chapter 2. This story goes kind of the first half of Exodus, to be honest with you. So, Go ahead, read it at home if you'd like to. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can, uh, you can look, you know, pull that out and look it up. Otherwise, it's just a 
great hard surface to take notes on if you're that type of person. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. But we're going to go to the story, Exodus chapter 2. And as we do so, this is a story that a lot of you have heard of before. It's a character in the Bible named Moses. That Moses is like the man on a lot of different levels. Remember, Moses is the, you know, Disney's Prince of Egypt. Moses, that guy. Moses is the Ten Commandments guy. Moses is the staff in the sand, parting of the Red Seas guy. I mean, he's, he's Moses. But for at this point in the story, I don't want to read like second half of life Moses. I want to read Moses before he was Moses. You know what I mean? Like, like Moses, as he's like this like scared young man, that runs away from fear at every chance that he gets. And that's like a characteristic that sticks with him. So I think it makes him really likable. I think it makes him really uh, relatable to all of us. Now we're going to see what God does with somebody like that to see what God does for somebody like us. So Exodus chapter 2, setting up a little context. In verse 11, it starts off this way. One day after Moses had grown up, he's about 40 at this time, he went out, still a young man, I hear some chuckles, but still a young man, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He's a Hebrew. He's one of these Israelites stuck in Egypt, in slavery, and he's seeing this thing happen. He doesn't like it, and so he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now, he knows that he's offended by this, and rightly so. He sees the injustice for what it is. He also knows God doesn't want this to go on, so he does something about it. Verse 12, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Just a quick comment on that. If at any point in your life or week or day ahead, if you find yourself looking this way and that, I mean, you're probably in a situation where God is asking you to resist temptation, right? Like, like that's not a great place to be, looking this way and that, but it also means it also means that it's not too late to stop whatever it is that you're thinking or stop whatever it is that you're doing. It's not too late to resist that temptation, okay? But if you find yourself trying to hide something, as he's hiding the Egyptian in the sand, if you're trying to hide evidence, hide the browser history, hide the receipts, like whatever it is, if you find yourself trying to hide something, you've no longer trying to resist temptation. You've given into it. It's time for accountability and it's time for forgiveness. But that's a different message entirely. My point behind this statement is just simply to say, Moses wanted to do the right thing the wrong way, right? Like he wants to liberate his people. He wants to save them. He sees something unjust happening and he isn't just gonna sit quietly by. He's going to do something about it. And so he kills an Egyptian and hides him in a sand, a right thing, the wrong way. By the way, he's 40 years old when this happens. The uh, Bible tells us that there's about uh, roughly 600,000 able-bodied Hebrew men. I mean, his plan of liberating the people, if these trends continue, right? You can't see where this is going. If he saves one person, liberates one Hebrew person every 40 years, it's going to take him square, or roughly around 24 million years in order to liberate all the able-bodied men in Israel, uh, Israelites living in Egypt at the time. I mean, he's, he's got... He's got a long road ahead of him with this plan. But fortunately for him, this plan isn't even going to work out because word is already starting to break out. And so his plan has to change. Verse 13, the next day he went out. 
Next day, he went out and he saw two Hebrews, his own people, fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Let me ask, are you thinking of killing me? Has you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses, Moses was afraid. He was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. It's that fear that we're talking about this morning. It's that fear that's the driving motivating factor in him. It's that fear that makes him run away. It's that fear that makes him pack up whatever he could fit on his back and run away across the, across the desert to a place called Midian. Doesn't matter, no maps. Nope, doesn't matter. It's the middle of nowhere. That's all you have to know. It's, a lo- it's not the edge of town. It's across the desert, Midian. All because he was afraid. I think he was afraid of a couple things. Uh, he wasn't afraid of the God that he professes to serve causing a punishment on him. He wasn't afraid because what he did was reprehensible. He wasn't afraid because what he did was wrong. He murdered somebody. He wasn't afraid because of that. No, no. He was afraid that he might get caught. As he runs away, he has two fears, I think. Number one is the fear of Pharaoh. Now, keep in mind, this is his adoptive mother's dad. He grew up in the palace in Egypt. He knows Pharaoh. He knows the character of Pharaoh. He knows what kind of forgiving or, in this case, unforgiving person that Pharaoh can be. He knows how Pharaoh likes to treat the Hebrew people, of which he is one. When he runs away from Egypt, he's very, very much running away from Pharaoh out of fear. But he's also running away from his own people. As we're going to see in just a minute, he's running away from his own people because it looks like they're turning on him and he's not wrong. Are you going to kill us like you uh, killed one of those Egyptians? I mean, is, is that who you are, Moses? I mean, his credibility is shot and he flees across the desert to Midian and camps out there. Now, in Midian, he starts what a lot of people call an encore career. At 40 years old, he decides to leave the princing business behind in Egypt because that bridge is burned, and he starts up in a farming kind of new life. And I'm not making this up. The farmer that he works for is named Jethro, because that's a perfect name, I guess, for a farmer in Midian. I don't know. But he works for Jethro. And then, again, not making it up, he marries the farmer's daughter named Zipporah, settles down with her, starts a new life together there. Forty years goes by of him being a shepherd, sheep, staff, the whole deal. 40 years. And he thinks like this is where he's going to finish out. But then God interrupts. God breaks in. God turns his world upside down because he sees in the distance. There's like, there's like a bush that's on fire, but it's not burnt, which is strange. And so he goes to check it out. And the closer that he gets, the more he can see that the bush is on fire. It's not getting burnt. And he gets right up to it. And there's a voice that comes out of that bush that's on fire, but not getting burnt. And says, Moses, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Not because Midian is so special or this concrete floor is so special because God dwells here. And so he does. He has this conversation with God where God essentially tells him, It's time to go home. It's time to go back. It's time to go to Egypt again because you, Moses, you're the one that I've chosen to save my people. 
I just think it's like really cool that Moses had clearly given up on God. He clearly had given up on that passion he once had to save and liberate his people. But what's so cool is that God did not give up on Moses. Because some of you are in a place today, this morning, where you come here and you've almost just given up. I mean, your body is here, your heart is somewhere far away from God. And you're just about there to give up with your body too. And you've just like, like given up on God and you need to hear that God has not given up on you. And God takes the first step in Moses in calling him back to his do-over. And God is gonna take the first step in your life too to meet you where you are, to call you back, to re-engage, to hope again and to love again. In fact, one of our values around here is that we keep, we keep Jesus at the center. So we try in every passage, Old New Testament alike, to point towards Jesus in every way. And God showing up in the burning bush and taking the first step to call Moses to go back and re-engage, to do it over again in Egypt. That is so clearly like God, so, so the heart of God to take the first step in the relationship. In fact, in Romans, it tells us that while we're still sinners, God, Christ, died for us. It's Jesus coming down, not after we get ourselves all cleaned up. That's how every other world religion works. But no, no, the heart of this faith is that God meets us while we're in the pit. God meets us while we're in the desert, while we're in Midian. God meets us there and says, it's time to do it over again. And then Moses answered, what if? In fact, if you're the note-taking kind of person, if you could just write those two words down because we're going to come back. What if? What if they do not believe me or listen to me? And what if they say that the Lord did not appear to you? He's going to object a few times. This is the first one where Moses says, God, no, 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 you got the wrong, you got the wrong guy. What if? What if they don't believe me? Why would they believe me after, after what I've done? If anybody remembers me, I mean, it's, it's game over, God. It's done. I fled once for a reason. What if? What if? Someone told me one time that the biggest regret isn't necessarily what you've done, but what you left undone. What if is a good question to ask, Moses. What if. God hearing this moves on and he answered him. This is his answer in verse two. He says, what's that in your hand? Captain Obvious, he's a shepherd. So he says, a staff, he replied. I've carried a staff for 40 years. Since becoming a shepherd, I've always had a staff in my hand. In fact, you could say it's the most ordinary thing in the world for a shepherd to carry a staff. And you see, you see, God is just about to do something. God's just about to do something with this ordinary thing in his hand. And just hang with me with a play of words here. He's about to make this ordinary thing extraordinary, right? Like, like, it's so ordinary that God is making it extraordinary through how ordinary it actually is. Sometimes God is going to use the most plain and common thing that you could possibly think of to radically transform your point of view, your perspective, or even your life and your faith life. God is going to use the thing that's maybe closest to you. 
I heard earlier this week someone say, God is going to use something so ordinary around you that maybe even you don't realize that it's sitting right there next to you. Maybe the answer to all those fears that keep you up at night, or maybe all of the answers to those questions that you've been asking, maybe, maybe it's not just next to you, maybe it's underneath, literally underneath a chair in front of you, and it's all right in there and down in story format. You can kind of see where I'm going here. Maybe it's in this one, or maybe there's a free app that you've already downloaded, but you haven't quite opened it up and done the reading plan, but the answers to all your fears and all those questions that you have are in there but you've carried it around for so long and you've watched it for so long that you don't quite realize what God can do with it if you open it. What's in your hand? A staff. And verse three, the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake, which is awesome, not just because it's a staff that turns into a snake, which is cool enough, but, but it's also the royal emblem of Pharaoh that he's running away from. Close your eyes for a second. Think of, uh, think of Pharaoh, like whatever you think of. Is he not wearing a funny hat with a cobra coiled over his head, like sticking out, right? You can open your eyes. He is, isn't he? I mean, that's how we think of him. We think of Pharaoh with the little coiled cobra around his head because that's actually the historical royal emblem of Pharaoh in Egypt at this time. You see what God is doing. How cool is this? Take your ordinary staff, your encore career second life, throw it on the ground. It's not only going to become a poisonous snake because everything in the desert can kill you, but also it's the royal emblem of the very thing that you're running away from. And he ran from it. <laughs> this is what I love about Moses, right? Moses before he's, oh, Moses. What I love about Moses, he's terrified all the time. Like his MO is just to flee. It's to run. I don't know how it is that God like, come on, no, no, you're not, like, you're not done yet. But like, I imagine kicking and dragging is involved, but God brings him back to the table. And in verse four, the Lord said to him, okay, here's the deal. Reach out your hand, take it by the tail. And so Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Now, let me just Like, let that thought marinate between your ears for a minute. Like, there's not just a poisonous snake on the ground, but it's also the royal emblem of the thing you're most afraid of. And God says, stop running. And God says, grab a hold of it. Do you remember that thing? that I asked you to remember earlier? That fear? You're afraid of getting out? You're afraid of people finding out? The fear that keeps you up? Is it possible this morning that God is gonna tell you, stop running from it. Pick it up. Grab it by its tail. That's what knocked me back about the story. That I want God to make all my fears to go away. 
I want God to make my life perfect. I want God to make everything sunshine and rainbows all the time. But that's not what God wants for me. That's not what God wants for you. He wants me and he wants you to stop running. He wants you to engage the fear. You see, there's a, there's a funny thing about faith. And we, we think that once we have faith, that faith will eliminate all of the fear. But faith doesn't eliminate fear. No, no, faith overcomes the fear. I don't think Moses is ever going to have that impulse to run. I don't think that impulse to run is ever going to go away. I think it's going to live with him for the rest of his life, except throughout the book of Exodus. If you read it this week, you can come to find out that it doesn't go away. But Moses, the the faith of Moses doesn't eliminate that fear, but it overcomes fear because Moses sees the snake and he sees the royal family and he sees what needs to happen to Egypt. But now in front of him, he sees a bush that's on fire and it isn't burned. And he sees God and he sees it. He says, the God that I serve, eliminate, it doesn't eliminate, it overcomes the thing that I'm afraid of. That God is so much bigger than my fear that it's almost like I don't have to be afraid anymore. Seeing these two in proportion for what they actually are, God is big as he is, and the fear is small as he is. I don't think he ever becomes less fearful of the thing, but seeing God is the courage to grab it by the tail. So I'm just going to ask, what do you need to grab? Yeah? Like, what conversation do you need to have? Like, what do you need to admit to the person next to you or maybe to the God above you? What, what do you need to do to, to stop running and to turn and to face it? Now, you could make a whole, like, you could make a whole message about that. I mean, I would love to, believe me. I mean, there's like a whole thing there about like, before God grows you into your future, he's gonna have you confront your past. Like, there's this whole mess there. But we gotta move on. Because he has two more objections, and they'll be quicker, I promise. The next one he says, all right, the Lord, uh, Moses said to the Lord, uh, pardon your servant, in verse 10, pardon your servant, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Literally, the phrase says in Hebrew language, this is first written, and I'm heavy in the mouth which is like anybody's guess as to what that means. A lot of people think he was just really, really shy. Some people think that he grew up in Pharaoh's household and he flunked speech class at Pharaoh University. Other people have said, based on a 2,000-year-old or plus uh, translation of the Old Testament into Greek called the Septuagint, they translate it like he had a stutter to him, a speech impediment. And maybe that's the thing. Other people said, dude, this has been 40 years since he's spoken Egyptian. Of course he's going to be not great with words. After all, this is a diplomatic mission. He's got to convince the most powerful person in the world at that time to do something that he's intent on not doing, letting his workforce just wander outside the gates. Like, why would he ever do this? How are you going to convince them into doing this? But I don't think that it totally matters, like whether it was a speech impediment or he was just shy or like whatever, it's been 40 years, like whatever it was. Moses, what's important for us is that he puts up an objection and he says, God, my ability isn't in the place that it needs to be 
in order to give you glory. And that's the problem. You've maybe heard the, the, the phrase, if you wanna make God laugh, tell him your plans. A couple of you, like four of you. If you wanna make God laugh, tell him your plans. Some of you can look back in life and like, that's true. I thought I had everything figured out. I didn't. <laughs> God's like, boy, have I got something else in mind. If you wanna make God laugh, tell him your plans. Here's this, if you wanna make God angry, Tell him your limitations. I'm going to quote the Westminster uh, Confession, Catechism, Confession, one of the two. It's not my tradition, but it's good stuff nonetheless. The first question and answer in there is, the chief end of humankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I believe that. I believe that our sole purpose is to glorify our maker, point back to God in some way, shape, or form, by going to work, by family, by neighborhood, whatever it is, to glorify God with every fiber of our being, that's our purpose. And now just imagine that's Moses' purpose to glorify God. And now God is asking him to do something and he's saying, no, 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 I can't do that because this is like where my ability ends. So God, essentially, because my ability ends here, that's as much glory as you can get. Your glory is going to be dictated by my limitation. Like, like how much honor and praise and glory you, you get, God, is determined by how much I can give you. Does that sound messed up a little? Like the God of the universe is going to have his honor drawn in and truncated at the line of your ability, of my ability. If you want to make God angry, tell him your limitations. You know, he responds in this by getting angry. You can read it on the way home. God responds to this by saying, who gave you a mouth? Who gave you sight? Who gave you hearing? You of all people are going to tell me, the creator of all of this, exactly what my limitations are. You've got to be kidding me. No, no. I reject your response. You're going to Egypt. And then finally, Moses just gets real with him. And he says in verse 13, he just says, pardon your servant, Lord. please send someone else. Just send someone else. You know, it doesn't really have anything to do with my credibility back in Egypt. That was a good excuse, I thought, though. It doesn't really have anything to do with my speech impediment or this being a diplomatic mission. It doesn't have anything to do with how rusty I am at the Egyptian language. I just don't want to go. That I can appreciate. I just don't want to go. I don't want the do-over, God. I don't want the do-over, God, because you're asking me to confront and engage the very thing that I'm most afraid of. I don't want the do-over, God, because people are going to find out that I killed a man. I don't want the do-over, God, because people are going to find out about this, that, or the other thing. I don't want the do-over, God. Let me just ask for a minute, if I could, what if? You remember those words that Moses asked? It's a good question. What if Moses responded, I don't want to go, and God said, okay, I'll find somebody else. What if? 
What if Moses stayed home that whole time? What if Moses never became Moses? What if, what if Moses never went back to Egypt and turned his staff into a snake again in front of Pharaoh and handled it? What if Moses never went back and so God never showed the world his might through the, through the 10 plagues in Egypt. What if Moses never led his people out of slavery and bondage? What if Moses never walked up to the Red Sea and put his staff in the ground with a prayer to heaven and God split it open and we walked through on dry ground? What if the book of Exodus was never written and we never got to see the holiness and the power of God Almighty? What if Moses simply stayed in Midian and none of this ever happened? Maybe the better question for each one of us this morning is whatever that, that fear that God is asking you to engage, what if you go home today unchanged? unresponsive to whatever God might be asking you, unwilling to engage the fear that lives inside of you. And what if you never see the power of God overcome that fear? What if you never have that hard conversation with your husband, with your wife, with your boyfriend, girlfriend? What if you never have that conversation with your housemate? What if you never open up and, and share your love of Jesus to your neighbor? who you want so desperately to know that she is loved beyond what she could ever even comprehend and she is known beyond anything that would make her feel terrified? What if, what if she never knows? What if? Those of you who are here at Encounter and call yourself partners and have joined along on this crazy mission to take people far from God and bring them to new life in Christ, what if you never started this church? And what if the 60 or so people that made fresh commitments to Jesus in the last year never made those commitments? What if? What if this church didn't exist and the, and the thousand or so people that are going to come through our doors in the month of September, most of them between 18 and 30, Never hear about Jesus. What if we simply say no? What if the student that is waiting to hear you tell them about Jesus and encounter kids never heal years. And there's a relationship there that's never built. What if? I've never, I've never said this from stage before. But when we moved into this building about three years ago, we started partnering with local organizations around. And you've heard me talk about the pantry that serves food to food insecure families right around this area. One of the reasons why they stayed here instead of moving over to Division Avenue is because there's a lot of nonprofits. In fact, they call it NPO Row sometimes because the rents are cheaper over there. But one of the reasons why they've stayed here is because there's a population here that needs, that needs the resources that a food pantry can provide here, not there, when transportation is an issue. I never said this before. When we moved in, we started partnering with, them, partnering with them, first financially, and then with volunteers heading over there to help serve those populations. We started offering gifts. It was a little bit at first, but it turned into tens 
I'm not sure how much, thousands of dollars, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of meals. But, but the owner, the, the executive director came up to me about a year and a half ago and said, when we got that first check, at the time in our board meetings, we were looking at closing permanently. It was that initial gift that kept our doors open and thousands of families in the area fed. What if we never made a commitment to live beyond ourselves? Here's the challenge for all of us this week. What if we did? What if we followed God wherever he was leading? What if we believed that we weren't just servants of God, but we were children of God? What if? I invite you to stand and let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, we ask these questions, what if? And for each one of us, we know there's going to be a different answer because you're calling each one of us according to what you have in store for us, not according to our ability. No, we're not going to limit you like that, but Lord, you're calling us according to what ability you're going to nurture inside of us and grow inside of us. God, we turn our lives and our resources, everything we have over to you, because we want to see that what if as a reality. We want to see what it means to live out your purposes and to live in a world where lives are changed and communities are changed and churches are changed and even the city is changed. God, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, at this time, we're going to celebrate communion together. And if you're brand new here at church, at Encounter, or just at church in general, I hope this isn't a time that causes you anxiety or fear in any way. It shouldn't. But this is a time where Christians, uh, wherever you are on the journey, Christians coming together and be 